Hello and welcome to Queer as Fact. My name is Eli. I'm Alice. I'm Irene. We are a queer history podcast that comes out on the 1st and 15th of every month. And in each episode, we'll talk to you about a figure or an event or an object or what have you from queer history. Today, we're talking about Henrietta Bingham, a Jazz Age heiress. Before we begin, we have several content warnings for this episode. We have discussions of alcohol and drug addiction and abuse, including two overdoses, a possible suicide attempt, an alleged murder, and the death of one of Henrietta's family members in a car crash. There's also unhealthy parent-child relationships, very typical homophobia, including conversion therapy, early 20th century psychoanalysis, including electroshock therapy and mentions of a lobotomy, very typical racism, including mentions of lynchings and the Ku Klux Klan, and one use of the word bitch in a quotation. So if any of that sounds like something that you don't want to listen to, feel free to check out any of our other episodes. We have content warnings at the start of all of them, so you can tailor the content to what you want to hear. So Henrietta Bingham is born on the 3rd of January 1901, and she grows up in Louisville, Kentucky. Her mother's side has amassed a huge fortune in ironworking, so they make engines and stoves and pipes and things, and her father's side isn't all that well off at all. He opens up a legal practice and he sort of tries to get involved with politics, but he's never really that successful, and they're primarily supported by the mother's wealth, which means that there's a lot of tension in the family because her mother-in-law views her father with a lot of suspicion. Henrietta is the middle of three children. She has an older brother and a younger brother, and she is daring and physically active and adventurous as a child, and she wins lots of competitions. She's the captain of a lot of sports teams, and she does well academically. Um, Wow. Is she that one person at high school that you just hate who's just good at everything? Probably. I feel like she she is. She might have had dyslexia. We know that reading and writing are just incredibly laborious mm-hmm. to her. And then in 1913, when Henrietta is 12, the family gets into a car accident and their mother dies. Oh. Yes. So that's a good start to the episode. A happy one. Yes. But she was so happy with her sports teams. Yeah. So this affects them all in a very like long-lasting and negative way. Her older brother, Robert, becomes an alcoholic and he never really recovers from that. Do you know how old Robert was when the car crash happened? I think about 16 or 17, like he's a few years older than her. Okay. Her younger brother, Barry, is temporarily mute. And her father, whose name is also Robert, but who gets called Bob, so we shall call him Bob. He was very, very dependent on his wife emotionally and he just kind of transfers that to Henrietta. Oh, no. Yeah. And so they have this really codependent, manipulative relationship, and Henrietta's never really able to break free of it. Oh, no. Yeah. So that's going to characterize a lot of this episode. I promise the jazz age happens and it's fun for a while. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I don't feel like I'm in for a fun story right now. There are parts that are fun. Okay. I'm sorry. (laughs) Keep Um, going. It's okay. We're about to get up to the poisoning of an heiress. Oh, that's fun. And then a few years later, their father marries Mary Lily Keenan, who was the widow of an oil, railroad, and real estate magnate, and she is worth $100 million, which is a number so big it just kind of sounds fake. (laughs) $100 million at the time? I think so. That's a lot of dollars. That is several dollars, yes. How many zeros is that after a one? Eight. Henrietta (laughs) is off at a fancy boarding school at the time, and none of the children are invited to the wedding. Oh. Yeah, and Mary Lily, when she sees them at Christmas, tries to win them over with all of these really fancy presents and all of this stuff, and Henrietta isn't having a bar of it. She sweeps them all onto the floor and storms out, 
And Mary Lily has just sort of never been treated like this in her life and she hates the children. So back up for a second. Why weren't they invited to the wedding? I don't know. I think that it may have just been that she didn't want them there. Okay. Like, I don't like her. (laughs) (laughs) She sounds like a spoiled heiress at this point in the story. Yeah. I don't know how fair that is. There isn't a lot of her in this. How old is she? I don't know, like middle-aged. Okay. I don't think she's that different in age to the father. She's an adult who's, I think, just been wealthy all her life and is used to getting what she wants and, I don't know, doesn't want adult children around her. Well, not adult children, but, you know, like... Adolescent children. Adolescent children. So the social situation for their father is very fraught because he's essentially seen by society as being a kept man, which isn't a great thing to be in the 1910s. And also Mary Lily is addicted to alcohol and morphine and the family's trying to keep it quiet. And then in 1917, she gets ill and dies. Whoops. Yep. Didn't last long. And contrary to their prenuptial agreement, Bob ends up with $5 million. He's supposed to get more or less? Less. Okay. Like, much less. Good job, Bob. This is very controversial, and the family objects to it, and they have her exhumed and autopsied. (laughs) Yep. And it's starting to look like Bob might get charged with murder. (laughs) Do you think he did it? No. Okay. Poor Bob. I mean, he could have, I guess. The biography didn't think so. (laughs) Okay. He vows to take the family to court for his $5 million, and then they tell him that they have an autopsy report that says that she died of an overdose of a drug that was used to treat syphilis, which would reflect very badly on him socially. Mm -hmm. Um, It's probably a fake. They never release it despite constantly threatening to do so. But he receives the message, which is, you know, keep quiet or we'll try to ruin you, and doesn't take them to court, and he ends up with the $5 million. So Wait, sorry. You said this like 10 seconds ago. He's getting $5 million, but he's going to take them to court... So he is willed $5 million. The family is like, that is nonsense, and we're not giving it to you. He goes, well, I'm going to take you to court for my $5 million. They're like, we're going to implicate you in her murder and also in having syphilis. He goes, okay, okay. And then they just give him $5 million, so we'll shut up. So they essentially kind of have the ability to ruin each other socially, both parties, which is very important at this time and place in social strata and whatever. And then they just kind of back away from the situation. Okay, so they just kind of pay him out and they all just kind of move on. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Okay. So the reason why this is important is because now Bob has $5 million. Okay. Nice. Yeah, and he has no particular plans for his $5 million. But then two local newspapers, the Courier Journal and the Louisville Times, their management fails and he goes, okay, why not? And he buys two papers. (laughs) Cool. And I'm not going to give you much information about the building of a publishing dynasty or anything like that, but basically, like, the papers do very well and they are like set up for life and this is the business he runs from here on out basically they are rich that's the point they're very rich i didn't really expect that honestly because he just kind of on a whim bought a couple of newspapers yeah he doesn't seem to run them like at all like he kind of notices like i don't know how newspapers works and i guess hires the right people yeah yeah i like bob okay (laughs) he seems okay he probably hasn't committed a murder (laughs) He also buys a mansion and the locals start calling him Lord Bing, (laughs) which I love. Don't you like Bob a little bit? I like Lord Bing. Yeah. And the children are all brought home from their various, like, boarding schools after the death of Mary Lily. 
and Henrietta is spoiled far more than the other two are. She is very firmly the favourite at the moment. Oh dear. He buys her horses and furs and cars and jewellery, and also she has a very strong interest in music, so he buys her lots of concert and theatre tickets, including to see jazz bands. That is not at all socially acceptable at the time. This is before jazz enters the mainstream of what it is okay okay for white people to like. Okay, yep. But Bob indulges her. The children have wild jazz parties in the mansion. The next morning, after one of them, Bob has to ask a servant to pick fried chicken out of the piano. (laughs) (laughs) Guys! Which, sure. So their older brother has lost his place as being the father's favourite. And he periodically kind of strives to regain his father's affections and then doesn't manage to do so because Henrietta is firmly the favourite. And that is kind of a result of and a cause of his alcoholism. So that's just a vicious spiral that they get stuck in and he never really regains favour with the family and he is always dealing with alcoholism for the rest of his life. You think that would be like the number one parenting rule? Don't you have a favourite? Yes. Or if you do, pretend you don't. Bob has a very unhealthy relationship with his children. Clearly. Yeah. How's he about the younger brother? Barry becomes more important to his father later in his life, which we'll get into later in this episode. Like, when they were children, because Henrietta was very kind of, like, physically adventurous and very outgoing and everything like that, Bob liked her better than Barry, because Barry was not that at all. He was quite, like, you know, just, like, quite dreamy and not very into, like, stereotypically masculine pursuits, like, sports or things like that, and was very happy to just trail after his mother and do the gardening. So Bob doesn't seem to have been enormously interested in him at this point. Like, he doesn't hate him, but he does remark, Barry, that it it would be nice if Dad would buy me something once in a while kind of deal. Yeah, like, it seems like he doesn't like Robert, he loves Henrietta, he just sort of doesn't doesn't care about Barry. Have strong feelings about Barry. I like Barry. Barry (laughs) sounds sounds nice. Barry and Henrietta are very close for their whole lives. Barry will come up. We've said Barry (laughs) our full allotment for this episode, so that's going to make it difficult to proceed. (laughs) It's probably worth mentioning that Barry's first name is George. (laughs) (laughs) Barry is his middle name. (laughs) That's kind of standard. Wait, so there was a father called Robert and a son called Robert, Mm -hmm. but they called the son called Robert Robert. But they called the son called George a different name. Why did they not call Robert by his middle name? His middle name is Worth. So that's probably why. <laughs> not any <I> good. <laughs> good um, anyway, we were talking about the very serious matter of Robert being forever displaced within the family and struggling with alcoholism. <laughs> family legend says that the bad relationship between Robert Jr. and Robert Sr. culminates in his youth with the younger Robert getting up on stage at Barry's holiday party event completely naked, presenting his father with a flower box, and when the older Robert opened the flower box, he found that there were no flowers inside, there was only horse manure. Wow! Yeah, so it's, like, quite bad, their relationship at this point. Like, it's quite dramatically bad. Yes! Yeah. So, Henrietta is still very promising, though. She graduates, she buys a saxophone, and she gets into Smith College, which is an elite women's college. So she moves there, she's living in a boarding house, and she, at the start of her freshman year, is richly inducted, as freshmen were, with what is called a frolic, where a sophomore girl plays suitor to a freshman girl and takes them to a dance and generally goes through all the, like, heterosexual courting rituals. Extremely heterosexual. Yes. That sounds very cute. It does. Activities like this were common in women's colleges at the time. Maybe they are now. I don't know. Smith College still exists. Like, write to us if you're listening to this. <laughs> but yeah, women's colleges at the time gained criticism 
for stuff like this because they were messing with traditional gender roles and all of the expected mainstream criticisms. They were accused of encouraging morbid tendencies in the <laughs> girls, which is code for it's gay, I assume. <laughs> morbid tendencies. Yeah. So... The academic pressure at Smith is enormous. She enrolls in English composition, English literature, Latin, French, astronomy, and a class called hygiene, which is mandatory. Her teachers are all older men and women, except for the 24-year-old <laughs> professor, Mina Steinkerstein, who teaches English composition. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. I, <laughs> this is going exactly where I think it's going, right? I, I don't know what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> So let's talk about Mina for a moment, which isn't to indicate that she'll be important to this story at all. She had graduated in 1918. It's now 1920. Mm -hmm. She is Jewish, which you probably couldn't guess from the name. And she is very politically radical. She boycotts mandatory church services at the college and convinces people to quit social clubs from which Jewish people were banned. And she believes that, quote, salvation and revolution are synonymous. Good. I like her. So she graduates from Smith in 1918, as I said, and then she, in a two-year span, works for military intelligence for a bit and then gets an MA. <laughs> works for military intelligence? Just casually. Yeah. Like, I'm going to take a gap year, not sure what I'm doing with my life, maybe be a spy. Okay, time to get my master's now. The quote in a book was something like, she does a stint in military intelligence, and I was like, what back up? <laughs> Is that all it told you? Yes. <laughs> and then she comes back to teach at Smith. And she seems to have made a very big positive impression on the girls that she taught. She is very encouraging and she sort of treats them as her like intellectual equals. So that is good. And then Henrietta also makes a big impression on Mina. And she, Mina, that is, spends a lot of time worrying over Henrietta. Because she's obviously very intelligent, but she's also very homesick and miserable. I think yeah. at this point, just yeah. in a way that is common for like a young woman who's moved away from home for mm. the first time. She's doing very well at Mia's class, but she's struggling with some of her others and she thinks that she might fail her exams. So the way it worked was that you were accepted, but then a few months later there were kind of like preliminary exams to prove that you could hack it there. Okay. Yeah. So she's been there a few months and she doesn't think she's doing well enough to pass them. Part of the problem here is, again, that she finds reading and writing very difficult. So again, she's potentially dyslexic or has some other kind of learning disability or something like that but like she works really hard it just never becomes yeah. easy for her <laughs> and she's very very panicked about disappointing her father she's the one that he has put all of his hopes on yeah at this point for academic success and she's worried she's not going to live up to that so henrietta becomes one of the three great loves of mina's life the first was a man who ran a publishing house and who has already come and gone in her life and will not appear in this story. The second <laughs> okay. is Henrietta. The third will appear later. She's very passionate about Henrietta. She's very, very in love with her, but she's also very ashamed about that. She destroys pretty much every mention of Henrietta at all in her papers. Um, is she ashamed because she's in love with another woman or is yes. she ashamed not because it's her student? Is that an no. issue? No. They're worried she'll be found out because then she might lose her teaching position, but she doesn't seem to be ethically worried about the fact that she's dating a student. No. Okay. Yeah. I mean, the age difference is not huge there. Yeah, like it's not a huge issue, but it could have been an issue yeah. in her head. It's not. She just doesn't want to be in love with a woman. Okay. And this colours a lot of their relationship. That is sad. Personally, I think being in love with a woman is great. Yeah, it is. If you're listening to this, do not be ashamed. You are correct. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, nevertheless, they fall in love and Mina becomes essentially kind of a part of the family circle for a bit. She meets 
the family and they really like her and she accompanies them on trips and things. Do they know what the relationship is or do they just like, yeah, this is Henrietta's close friend? At this point, yeah, at this point, they don't know that they're a couple. Mina manages to arrange for Henrietta to redo some of her classes in the fall and first they go off to London for a nice little trip and Mina and the Binghams go and see the Ballet Russe put on Sergei Diaghilev's productions and they're so impressed that they go and they see him again see them again rather and the reason that's exciting to us is because there was another episode (laughs) with the Ballet Russe in it Yes, Um, who are queer the entire company yeah so if you're interested in hearing more about them go and listen to our episode on Nijinsky and Sergei Diaghilev is in that a whole bunch disclaimer they're not all queer (laughs) yeah unfortunately not everyone is queer Mina is very connected in literary circles and she goes and spends time with George Bernard Shaw and H.G. Wells. However, it's becoming a problem more and more the fact that she and Henrietta can't tell anyone that they're a couple. So, for example, she is staying with a friend of hers, Frida Lasky, and she is trying to encourage her to find another man and she can't tell her that, well, I'm in a relationship, it's just with a woman. Frida tells her that, you know, you have to find a new man. The only alternative is to have your sexual organs removed along with your wisdom teeth. <laughs> That's it. Those are the options, guys. <laughs> Which... I, I didn't... <laughs> like, I don't have a lot of context for this, but it was just a bit of a striking <laughs> sentence, so I thought I'd mention that. I have wisdom, too. I, uh, so, <laughs> that occurred. Oh, okay, that was interesting. Yeah. And then in 1921, Henrietta goes back to Smith and essentially is sort of starting over as a freshman. She's very determined to work hard and to actually do well this time, but she's also distracted by the burgeoning jazz scene around her. So she starts doing badly at school again. She's skipping classes. She gets noticed for leaving campus without permission to go and see movies and to drive in cars. And she also gets appendicitis, which means that she misses weeks of class, and their grandmother dies, which, you know, I imagine would impact your... academic performance a little bit Mm -hmm. so she's not doing well and she is declared a detriment to the community by the school wow yeah is that a standard phrase the school uses to talk about like bad students or is this just a thing that they labeled her like what does that mean it's an official like okay status you can have essentially yeah she's effectively suspended and she and mina effectively i think pretend it's like voluntary leave for a while I don't know when that stops being the ruse because she never goes back to Smith after this. Okay. She's done with the university. And she and Mina go off to Europe again in 1922. Again, they're increasingly anxious about the fact that they're hiding their romantic relationship. They need some more queer friends. Well. (laughs) (laughs) But first we need to do something a bit less fun. Oh no. Henrietta is in particular anxious about hiding it from her father, whom she has an incredibly close relationship with. Mina wants Henrietta to see a psychoanalyst because of her anxiety and because that's preventing her from having a, like, healthy life and successful studies. But also it's because Mina doesn't see any kind of real future for them as a couple. And she also doesn't consider herself to be a lesbian. I think that's basically because, I mean, first of all, Mina's more accurately described as bisexual. She's had lovers who were men before and she will again. But also it'll be fairly apparent as this goes on 
has a very high amount of internalized homophobia that she's dealing with. Uh-huh. I was getting that impression mm-hmm. already. Yeah. yeah. So she writes to Dr. Ernest Jones, who is part of a circle that includes Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung. Oh no, it is Freud. My nemesis. <laughs> <laughs> so, psychoanalysis in the 1920s. Oh no. Yes. So it's a very hot topic of the day. Uh, It's talked about a lot, but it's also very controversial. And it's often viewed as obscene because it talks about, like, suppressed sexual urges and things like that. Bookstores in America will often refuse to stock Freud's works. (laughs) So not many Americans are actually being psychoanalyzed. At the time, its relationship to queer people is, like kind of ambiguous it's not as rapidly homophobic as it is to become in the next several decades but the prevalent idea seems to be freud's idea that homosexuality or bisexuality is essentially like an immature phase of sexual development and you should develop past it but sometimes you don't freud himself i believe didn't think that you could actually change someone's sexuality or at least that you were very unlikely to be able to and he would advise people in letters to just kind of like get on with their lives or to accept their son or whatever because probably this was just how things were oh jones on the other hand believed that people could develop past same-sex desire he essentially viewed this as a kind of psychoneurosis something close to narcissism and effectively he thinks that he can perform a kind of conversion therapy like this is what this is close to narcissism is in you like other women because you really like yourself and you're a woman so look i was frankly very unwilling to go and do a bunch of reading on this like not very relevant to the entire story and also like not awesome person (laughs) reasonable uh and frankly i i didn't think that if i read a bunch about psychoanalysis i could be like oh no here so i'll explain this to you like this is nonsense like we know that early psychiatry is nonsense so you know the real answer is as nonsense as the half answer i'm giving you lazily (laughs) yeah reasonable yeah so he's advocating a kind of conversion therapy it's not with like electroshock and things like that like it's just through kind of like sitting down and talking about how maybe you should be less gay or whatever but like you know <laughs> it's still worked. terrible and it doesn't yeah. work so mina in writing to him writes this 12 page history of henrietta we don't know if henrietta knew about this or helped with it yeah so this I... is questionably ethical <laughs> but basically mina theorizes that henrietta's feelings for women are directly tied to the death of her mother and her father's dependence on her Well, that's Freudian, yeah. Yeah, I suspected that's where that would go, yeah. It's very similar to a lot of descriptions that Freud had written about lesbian development and, like, lesbian case studies at the time. And Jones agrees with Mina's assessment. So he thinks that she prefers women because it means that she doesn't have to examine conflict with her father, who was her, like, fantasy lover figure because of Freud. (laughs) Why are you like this? Mina, in her letter, she makes it clear that she views their relationship as an extremely beautiful and honest one, but also that the secrecy is essentially destroying her and she doesn't view it as being conducive to the fullest and most useful sort of life. Okay. So, is what Mina wants here for the relationship to be less secret or for it just to end? As it will become apparent as we go on, Mina doesn't really know what she wants. So Mina wants both of those. Like, she doesn't want to be in a relationship with Henrietta anymore, but she does. Yeah. And she struggles with that, like, forever. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Mina tries to persuade Henrietta to go and see Jones, 
and she's reluctant to. She has a more positive view on her sexuality than Nina does, but eventually she goes. This really makes me feel like Henrietta was not on board with this 12-page letter that was sent. No, probably not. I liked Mina, but like... Mina, I think, is never like actually malicious, but she's very screwed up over her sexuality and makes some very bad choices because of it. Yeah. Yeah, I feel bad for Mina. Mm. On um, the other hand, she thinks salvation is synonymous with revolution. Yeah. That's true, she does. Good on you, Mina. So she starts seeing Jones, and he ends up treating both Mina and Henrietta. He's thrilled at this rare opportunity to be analysing both halves of a queer couple, and he is apparently just ethically untroubled by this, and he even discusses them with each other in their <laughs> sessions. No. No. They no. weren't very good at this yet. No, they really were not yet. But surely patient confidentiality is not a difficult concept. Like, they see him for years and years and years, and even when they don't see him for sessions anymore, they stay in contact with him. And they tend to have this, like, very close, not quite entirely professional relationship with him anymore. Like, they go around his house for dinner and stuff. Okay. Yeah, so I don't think it is quite the thing where they are just conceptualising this as, like, a purely you are a medical health care professional who I'm seeing and we need to maintain a professional relationship. Like, that's just not the conception that any of the people in it have. Okay. Obviously, it's still ethically dubious by today's standards, but that makes it more okay by Mm. the standards of the time. Even Henrietta, who doesn't really want to start this to begin with, views this man positively for the rest of her life and... Okay. Views him as like generally trying to help her, and sometimes she seems to want that help. So like, uh, okay. okay. So she's in London, and she kind of just keeps extending her London visit. And the newspaper business is doing very well back home. Good. Bob periodically demands that she comes home to help him run this newspaper business, and he just kind of throughout his life places enormous professional and familial responsibility on her. And she's in her early twenties and is really anxious and isn't cut out for this at all. So that doesn't go well. Yes. I'm mad at Bob. Yeah, I <laughs> okay. hear this. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, like, he's quite manipulative about it. He's kind of like, you have a duty to come home and, like, help me with your brothers and things like that. And it's kind of like, she's not your wife, man. No. Her brothers are adults, too. Yeah. I mean, I don't think Barry is yet, but nearly. But yeah, she has no desire to come home, and she does not. Good. She and Mina go out to nightclubs, and they listen to jazz bands, and they... Drink gin fizzes and lime rickies and all of his lovely 20s things. Can we find the recipes for these and put them on our blog? Yeah, that's a good idea. Let's get, like, genuine 20s ones. Yeah. And they attract the attention of people like the Crown Prince of Romania, who was serving in the Royal Navy at the time. That's what always happens when I go to clubs, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Who's the Crown Prince of Romania? (laughs) And then one day Mina is doing Christmas shopping and she goes into a little basement bookshop near the British Museum. And it's the one that's run by Francis Birrell and David Garnett of the Bloomsbury Group. So the Bloomsbury Group is just a collection of friends, many of whom remained very famous and relevant in later years, and they were all mostly artists of various kinds. Except Keynes, who was not... Yeah, except Keynes, who was an economist. No, there were a few others who were not particularly significant as artists, but they're coincidentally the ones we don't really talk about. (laughs) So it's people like Virginia Woolf and Ian Forster and that sort of circle. And Francis Birrell and David Garnett. So now we need to plug another episode that we did. <laughs> so this bookstore, this very bookstore, came up in a recent episode of ours, which was on John Maynard Keynes, who was also part of the Bloomsbury Group. I think both Francis Birrell and David Garnett were lovers of Keynes. Yeah, they um, were. The connections of the Bloomsbury Group are legion and we can't go through them all here and i wanted won't. to draw a diagram for the canes episode but i don't know if i'm like capable 
there is no mapping this. People have tried. I looked on the internet yeah, and it was sure. always like, not quite. Mm. So it's not as if the Keynes episode will lay that all out in full for you, but it'll shed some light. So like, listen to it if this part of the episode is interesting to you. So David Garnett, who is known by his friends as Bunny, <laughs> is working that day. And he sees Mina come into his shop and he is completely captivated by her. And instead of, like, speaking to her or anything, oh, know, dear. he decides to sneak his newly published novella, Lady into a Fox, which is about a lady turning into a fox, <laughs> into her packages. <laughs> and she opens her packages and she reads it and she loves it and is very confused about where it came from. <laughs> this is quite cute, honestly. Yeah, yeah. And she goes back to the bookstore and talks to him and they hit it off and they recommend each other books and it's lovely. And then David comes around to Mina and Henrietta's flat for tea and he adores Henrietta as people sort of tend to do. He nicknames her Puppin and he calls her a pudding. (laughs) And he adores her caressing voice of the South, which, you know, I guess that was the thought of American accents of the day. And David learns about their love affair, and he doesn't really understand why they see Jones, and he doesn't see anything wrong with them. Homosexuality is quite, like, the dumb thing in the Bloomsbury group, although there is a bit of a tendency to see female homosexuality in a, like, less positive light than male homosexuality. Yeah. Yeah. David Garnett is very flirtatious, and Mina starts to fall in love with him, and then she's taken aback to learn that he's married to Rachel Costello, another member of the Bloomsbury group, who Keynes almost kind of has a relationship with, but doesn't know how to seduce because she's a woman and he's only ever been with men. Oh, Yeah. You're going to need to listen to the Keynes episode, yeah. Irene. Okay, I will. Also listeners, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it'll it'll help. I'll try to make this as clear as possible, though. I don't think that he, like, hid his marriage or anything. I think his circle was just quite, like, like the norm was to not be monogamous, really. And so he just sort of brought up his marriage when it was relevant. And Mina was coming to this from a very different angle and was like, wait, what? So, you know, that's a point of contention. So through David Garnett, they begin to meet members of the Bloomsbury group. They look for a country house to spend the summer in. And he suggests Lytton Strachey's house. And they go and inspect it. Is Lytton Strachey a man? Yes. Oh, yes, sorry. His full name is Giles Lytton Strachey. He's a writer and a member of the Bloomsbury group. And also slept with Keynes. And also slept with Keynes, like a whole bunch did um, Keynes have a lot of sex or did the Bloomsbury yes. group all sleep with each other a yes. lot? <laughs> okay, just checking. But was Keynes an abnormality? Nah. No, all right, not cool. really. He did have a lot of sex. So they go and inspect it. They meet Dora Carrington, who is Lytton Strachey's platonic life partner. I adore their relationship. And they, they really like the house and they want to rent it. But then Lytton decides that he couldn't bear to have them live in his home because they're Americans. <laughs> Unfortunately, some of the Bloomsbury group are quite snobby in English. I apologise, American listeners. If it helps, they would have been appalled at us staying in their house as well, because we're Australian, which is probably even worse. (laughs) Nevertheless, David Garnett decides to use his birthday party to present them to the group in full. And so it's held in Duncan Grant and Vanessa Bell's studio. They are two other members of the Bloomsbury group. They are also artists. This is true of every one. Duncan also slept with Kane. Yes, he did. Like, particularly significantly. Yeah. Yeah. Henrietta made a cake and she decorated it with a little fox in a coat chasing two ducks. Aww. Which was from one of Ray's woodcuts for Lady into a Fox. Aww. Yeah. Which I thought was very cool. We should make this cake. Mm, we should. 
So Mina's a bit anxious and out of her element at the party, but Henrietta does very well. She always does very well at social settings. And what an impressive person. Yeah, I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> so she mixes drinks for everyone and she Aww. plays the mandolin. Lit and Strachey never likes them, Aww. but everyone else adores them. And at this party, she meets the young artist Stephen Tomlin, who is known as Tommy. He is very good looking and charismatic and promiscuous. So basically, he's a member of the Bloomsbury group. (laughs) And he pursues her and she's very attracted to him, but she's also hesitant about it. And they have a sort of relationship that drags on for a while. He both delights in this relationship, but also resents her. There's a bust of Henrietta that was done in marble by Tommy that we will put a photograph up on our social media. Oh. So Mina wants Henrietta to find a male lover and move on from their relationship. Like that is ostensibly the goal. But also, she's very in love with her and does not actually want this at all in any way. Oh, dear. So as soon as she starts seeing a man whenever this happens, Mina is, like, very jealous and upset, but also kind of encourages it. And it's a mess. Yes. So they are in London still, and they stay there for a while, now kind of enmeshed with the Bloomsbury group. And Henrietta throws a lot of parties, and she invites a lot of jazz musicians to these parties. So... Jazz, as I've mentioned earlier, is not quite proper for, like, a young white woman to be into yet. It's quite controversial, and a big part of that is, of course, just because it's created by African-American musicians, and this is a very racist time. But it's also still very successful. Like, it's becoming more and more successful. Okay. So, for example, Florence Mill and Edith Wilson are two very talented jazz singers of the time, and they put a troupe together, and it's successful enough in America that they can fund a trip to London. And when they get to London, the shows are sold out and people love them, but also people throw rotten tomatoes at them. So, it's that. Henrietta is a bit ahead of the curve in terms of her enjoyment of jazz. She's very, very knowledgeable about it at a time when it's just kind of coming into like mainstream public consciousness. And so she wants to show her support and her appreciation for these musicians. She never gets like meaningfully involved in activism or anything like that, but she is very anti-segregation and she throws parties and sort of tries to introduce these musicians to other people who might be useful in terms of connections and things like that. She also throws parties just to show her support and appreciation because this is what Henrietta does. So part of why she likes jazz is because she views it as very sexy and she thinks it paints her as kind of being exotic for having this interest. Mm -hmm. Um, I see. Yeah. And, like, the performances themselves are often trading on these very, like, sentimental racist stereotypes about black people and also just the South in general. Mm -hmm. And Henrietta is from an old Southern family. And so she's probably responding to the nostalgia presented in these pieces somewhat. So that's the situation as best as I can lay it out. Yeah, I think she has her heart in the right place and she's not Mm -hmm. like overtly awful or anything like that. I don't want to use the phrase she's a product of her time because I think that's often used to sort of Excuse things. Excuse things and also historicize things a bit. Kind of be like, oh, well, back in those days, people were racist. And it's like, yeah, okay, those attitudes are still around. and Also weren't universal then. That's just the time, like, doesn't productively deal with that in any way. So they have one of these parties where she invites her musician friends. And at one of them, this is not important to the plot. It was just fun and I'm being gratuitous. Mina's younger brothers, Lincoln and George, I'm not sure if they're like children or teenagers at the time, but they are young people, are visiting from Boston and they wake up because of this raucous jazz party that's going on. (laughs) And so they end up getting dressed in girls' pyjamas and then are led by Lydia Lopakova in an impromptu pas de trois. Lydia Lopakova being Keynes' wife, (laughs) who was a ballerina. 
And then 10 years later, Lincoln helps form the New York City Ballet. So maybe it was formative. (laughs) I guess he learned something. That was good. Lytton Strachey, who apparently hated Henrietta and Mina, seems to have been relatively fond of these two children. He gets them drinks and he apparently answers a bunch of questions that Lincoln has about his beard. He had quite a long beard. Later on in the night, Henrietta stands up on top of the piano to play the saxophone. And also, just to get Keynes in there one last time, over the summer, he takes the boys to a bunch of galleries and things. So, oh, good yeah. on you, Keynes. Yeah, I just really enjoyed that information. That just sounds fun. <laughs> yeah. In 1923, late in 1923, Mina and Henrietta finally go home, so they've been there for like a couple of years at this point. Oh, I was having fun with them hanging out with the women's group. I was enjoying this part a lot. I'm sorry. Blame Bob. God damn it, Bob. Bob has been writing to her constantly for advice on the newspapers and on her brothers, and finally he insists that she comes home. She does plan to return the following year. And Mina also comes back. She's very insecure about her relationship with David. He's made it clear that his two other lovers, who are Rachel Costello and Duncan Grant, are more important to him, but he still likes her, and he's putting a fair amount of effort into trying to sleep with her. I mean, at least he's communicated. Yeah, I I think they just want different things out of this. I mean, I very much feel like Mina has no idea what she wants. Well, Mina is quite, like, she believes in the sanctity of marriage and things like that. Mm -hmm. And she, I just don't think, is cut out for becoming a part of a, like, complex polyamory web. Yeah. She never does sleep with him, partly because of what he constantly calls her puritanism and partly just because she's very in love with henrietta so she leaves london and she's both considering getting a publishing job in london to be near him and also never seeing him again okay so she does somewhat not know what she wants yes yes (laughs) so henrietta is very bored and restless back in kentucky she briefly opens up a bookshop with barry um with her father's money but she gets bored of it very quickly Tommy is very desperate to have her come back and to be in some kind of steady, definable relationship with him. And he's constantly writing to her, and she's just not terribly forthcoming with her replies. She will just take ages to reply, and she won't send very long letters and things like that. And this is a pattern with her lovers where someone will fall. I mean, we've also established that she struggles with reading and writing. It's not super surprising if she's going to write short letters and reluctantly. Yeah, but I think it's also just that she just doesn't care as much as them yeah is this with mina though that's not the situation is it we don't know okay yeah those those letters don't survive mm-hmm. also they're like up until this point haven't really had much occasion to write letters that we've been together that's true that's yeah. true but yeah like someone will fall desperately in love with her and then she just never returns it to that extent then she writes to david garnett and asks if he can ask tommy if he'll marry her She's very unsure about what she wants and how she feels, but she's tempted by marriage because it's a way out of a life that she isn't happy with in America and it's potentially way out of her father's control. That just sort of gets left hanging for a while. Do we know if David Garnett did ask Tommy? So I think he did and Tommy kind of said that he would, but like that circumstances would need to be different than they are. Like, I think it was kind of like, I mean, if you really want this, I would totally marry you, but what is going on? (laughs) Okay, fair. I mean, fair. Yeah. That's how I would react in this circumstance, I feel. Yeah. Mina and Henrietta still have feelings for each other, as you might expect, and they're again very stressed about being discovered. Now they're back in America and away from their nice queer group of friends. And then something bad happens. We don't really know exactly what. Henrietta's relationship with her father reaches its lowest point, and Bob severs all ties with Mina. Wow. 
Yes. So three accounts of what this story was exist. The first is that Mina tried to seduce Bob in order to get his money and be with Henrietta. (laughs) Who gave this account? So they're either from letters at the time or they're like Bingham family legend. Okay. The second is that Bob tried to seduce Mina but was rebuffed and banished her. And the third is that Robert, the older brother, saw an intimate moment between Mina and Henrietta and told Bob. The last is probably what happened. Yeah. yeah. The last sounds the more plausible, yeah. Yes. But in any case, Mina is forever barred from the family and Henrietta does not react well. Okay. So that is bad. In June, Henrietta and her father go back to England to broker purchasing contracts. Let's never talk about that. <laughs> um, Henrietta is reunited with Tommy and it's very awkward and they just kind of don't know how to proceed. Essentially, they're only communicating through David. <laughs> Poor I David. Mean- I did wonder about that when she asked David to ask him to marry her. Like, you're already writing letters to this man. Yeah. Bob returns home at the news that he might be considered as a presidential candidate by the Democrats. What? He's been involved in politics, I guess. (laughs) Okay. But Henrietta stays in London. He does not become the presidential candidate for the Democrats. And then she spends time with the Bloomsbury's again. Everyone still adores her except for Lytton. Um, someone remarked that the only safe place for Henrietta was in Lytton's bed if she wanted a quiet night. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm just imagining that, her coming into Lytton's room like, hey, I don't want to do anything. Can I just sleep in your bed? (laughs) He would be like, get out. (laughs) (laughs) I want to know why he hates her. Is it just because he's a snob? I guess we never know. I think so. Um, Well, it could also be because she starts spending a lot of time with Dora Carrington, who goes by Carrington, and they start up a relationship. One day, Henrietta poses nude for her. The sketch survives. Oh, good. It shall be on the blog. Excellent. And after she poses nude for her, they have sex, which Dora describes as ecstasy and no feelings of shame afterwards, which is quite a big deal. Good um, Because she had like a long pattern of revulsion towards her body and would reject potential lovers whenever things started to get serious and things. So I'm glad that she like, had a nice time for, yeah. for once. That's interesting, because there are like a fair few nude photos of Carrington. Oh, are there? Yeah. Yeah, all right. Well, I don't know. I imagine that's complicated. Yeah, I'm sure that yeah. is complicated. Like, I started to delve into this, and then I was like, listen here, <laughs> this is another <laughs> episode and you know it. <laughs> and then I refused to. But yes... It's that old pattern where Carrington is very in love with Henrietta and Henrietta is never really that attentive and won't reply to her messages for days at a time and things. I understand. Yeah. (laughs) I actually ignore my messages for days at a time. (laughs) She's also kind of in a relationship with Tommy at this time, but it's also just very up in the air as it has been. She also sleeps with David Garnett at some point. Mina is very upset whenever Henrietta has another lover, but she feels especially betrayed by this because she had feelings for both parties. I feel like both the people I'm crushing on get together. It's like a victory. You only have to crush in one place. (laughs) (laughs) Your social calendar is so much easier now, Mina. (laughs) So despite whatever happened earlier with Henrietta's family Mm -hmm. and whatever happened with Mina, Mina and Henrietta are still together at this point? Yes. Okay. So Mina invites Clive Bell, who is the husband of Vanessa Bell, who was briefly mentioned earlier, and was another Bloomsbury group member, to a party, and they get drunk, and she has to write him a letter the next day to kind of be like, so what happened? And everyone assumes that they slept together, and then suspicions are confirmed a few weeks later when Clive Bell writes to Lynn Strachey and mentions that Mina's underclothes are the best in America. (laughs) 
Mina's underwear comes up again in this episode. I want good. to know more about it. Did she just have really good taste in underwear? Did she spend a lot of money on it? Was uh, it just... I don't know. I will look up. Oh, my God. Maybe she went and bought nice underwear for this occasion. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I could find the letter and see if he like then details it, but I doubt it. And then Bob reveals that he is going to marry for the third time, which is, I don't know, like a reasonable thing for someone to do in their lives. But Henrietta and Bob don't have a healthy relationship at all, and she vomits for five hours after she hears the news. Um, She feels she's being punished for not paying enough attention to him. Um, This might be a little Freudian. It's not good. Yeah. (laughs) It's unhealthy. They're codependent, and they don't treat each other well, and it's bad. I mostly wanted to mention this marriage because of that reaction. His wife is a woman called Aline Muldoon-Hilliard. She is from a gravestone and monument-making family. She's never important again. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So goodbye, Aline. Aline Gravestone. (laughs) Aline Gravestone. (laughs) And then in late 1924, Henrietta withdraws from the Bloomsbury group. Their opinions of her have been collectively calling because of how she has been treating Tommy and Carrington. They're very harsh on her, though. Carrington talks about American female bitches. Yeah. And Tommy writes kind of half in jest of her lovers that, quote, if they only knew what risks they are running falling in love with you, they would hang themselves before dinner and die happy. I sometimes wish I had done so. Oh, no. So then Mina goes back to America in 1924, and she meets Henry Tomlinson Curtis, who was the third great love of her life. He is married when they meet, and they have a very unhappy marriage and is trying to divorce his wife. So this is a risk to Mina's reputation again. She describes him as a very male Henrietta. I see. Yes. You're making some choices there, Mina. No, they love each other. It's good. Can I ask a question about Mina? Yes. So she was working as a teacher, yes. and then she just kind of went off to London for a while. What's her source of income? Or is Henrietta supporting her? I think her family has some means. Okay. But also she is involved in various sort of literary pursuits. She does translations of Proust later on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm not sure what she's doing at any given time, but she has various sources of income. Okay. She keeps the relationship a secret because she's worried that Henrietta will be upset. It's Jones, the psychoanalysis, who breaks the news to her. We don't have a record of her reaction. But Henrietta does become quite good friends with the two of them and will go to the house and stuff, so it's okay. all right at some point. Anyway, when Harry's divorce goes through, they get married, and he buys her nice lingerie for the wedding, and it's found in a trunk Aww. in the Bingham's attic, bearing Harry's monogram. It's either stolen or gifted, we don't know. But it definitely ends up in Henrietta's attic. Oh, okay. Yeah. Huh. That's the last of Mina's underwear. Okay. Yeah. She obviously just liked underwear, I guess. Yeah, that's reasonable. Yeah, <laughs> if it's come up in the historical record. In 1925, Henrietta comes back to America and she moves to New York because of the jazz scene there. She gets a job selling ads and building the subscriber base for Theatre Arts Monthly. And she has a circle of Southern friends and creates an atmosphere of glamour and gaiety achieved almost entirely with bourbon and mirrors. <laughs> Which was that a, was a good quote. Yeah, I liked that. And then she meets up with the writer Jack Houseman, who she had originally met in London. And they go out drinking and dancing, and they start dating because, like everyone else she meets, he falls in love with her. He's very, very insecure and struggles a lot with anxiety and self-pity and things like that. She's from this enormous, influential family and from a lot of wealth, and he's a very like small-time tradesman and struggling writer. Aww. So that impacts, you know, his... But- pre-existing tendency towards being very self-conscious and things like that. Bob is very threatened by him. He doesn't want to lose Henrietta to anyone. So again, this is unhealthy. 
ahead. Yeah. He offers to make her his associate and legal successor publicly if she returns home. And she kind of confesses the situation to Jack Houseman, that she feels like she's drowning in guilt and responsibility. And I think she kind of wants him to help or to save her from this in some way. Yeah. He can't. And it's bad. And then they're separated for quite a while because of his work, and she decides to go back to England again. They write, but as always, he writes much more, and he's very dissatisfied with her replies. He wants her to come and spend the winter with him in Vancouver, and she decides to spend it in London instead, which he's very upset about. Yep. And so he goes to Mina for advice, and she just tells him all about Henrietta's relationships with women and how anxious and undependable she is, which seems, you know, a bit like a, a break in trust. Yeah. Somewhat. Yeah. Jack is pretty overwhelmed by this. It feeds his insecurities again, and all of his insecurities and his self-pity and everything take a big toll on the relationship. He ends up alternating between adoration, verbal abuse, and then self-flagellating apology, and yeah. that just gets in an unhealthy circle. Mm-hmm. And in the end, she can't deal with that, and they break it off. And then in January of 1928, Mina's husband gets pneumonia and dies, Oh, no. And Mina is heartbroken, uh-huh. and she's never the same again. Oh. Yes. And around this time as well, The Well of Loneliness is published, which is a very influential book by Redcliffe Hall about lesbian women. And the protagonist is a very masculine lesbian woman, and it goes a long way to cement what was already this like public opinion that female masculinity meant homosexuality. Yeah. Bob, at this point, also can't pretend that Henrietta is about to marry a man or that, you know, her relationships with women are platonic. And so he kind of decides to have a bit of a don't ask, don't tell approach to her relationships. He kind of tacitly approves of them. Like, he'll let her have some of them stay with him and things like that. But he demands that her appearance gives no hint of masculinity. And so she dressed kind of alternately in masculine and feminine dress before this. Okay. Now on, she always wears skirts. So... Bob. 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 (laughs) So it's the 30s, which is the best time for money in America. And the stock market free falls, but they're rich enough that they can kind of cope with it. They are quite rich. They are quite rich. It's nice to be that rich. No, it's not. (laughs) (laughs) It's unethical. Yeah. Yeah, that too. (laughs) That too. It's pleasant and unethical. (laughs) True. Things seem to settle down a bit. She lives with her father for some of the year. Their relationship seems okay. Mm-hmm. Um, she is drinking more and more and using alcohol to cope more and more, though. Oh, no. One night at the Louisville Country Club, she makes a pass at a debutante, and the debutante runs out of the bathroom and leans over the grand staircase to yell, Henrietta Bingham just kissed me on the lips. <laughs> and oh, no. Henrietta has to go away to Europe for a while to sort of live that down. When she returns from Europe, she helps her father in his work on Franklin D. Roosevelt's campaign for the presidency, if that wasn't clear. (laughs) When Roosevelt wins the presidency, Bob is up for the ambassadorship to the court of St. James, which is just the American ambassador to England. The good old murder investigation from back in the day gets dragged up, and there's a lot of drama in the press, and FDR calls him my favourite murderer behind his back. So that might be a new fact that you just learnt about Roosevelt. Who was Roosevelt's favourite murderer? (laughs) Yes. You're welcome on this very specific trivia question. If it ever comes up, you owe us a beer. 
However, he ultimately gets the job and he tells Henrietta that he'll do it. He'll go if she goes with him. Of course. Stop, Bob. Just stop. Bob, you need to grow up. Mm. And then he collapses due to stress Uh and he's in ill health. And so he basically manipulates her with that and she goes with him to London. (laughs) So she's living in their townhouse and she's hosting a lot of social events and she's very successful at that. And then a successful US tennis team comes and stays with them and it's headed by Helen Hull Jacobs. She is quite cool. She pioneered wearing shorts as a woman in tennis. Good. They still don't do that. They still wear skirts. Yeah, but they can wear shorts. And some of them do. They what? wore, like, calf-length skirts, and oh, she wore shorts. Oh, yeah, yeah, and yeah. it was a thing, at least then, that other women could then also wear shorts. Wear shorts, yeah. So she's very successful and competitive and self-disciplined and into clean living and things like that, and because she met her, she falls in love with Henrietta. <laughs> she becomes very close with the family. She has her own room in the house very quickly. Huh. This is one of her relationships that Bob is willing to turn a blind eye to, and the public is very determined to never talk about homosexuality. And also, they're both kind of public darlings at the moment. So they're basically able to make a home together, albeit somewhat fragilely. And they're also... With Bob. With Bob. (laughs) But they're also, like, you know, unhappy with the fact that they have to be secret. But it's something. Mm -hmm. In 1935, Henrietta brings Helen back with her to Kentucky, which is quite gutsy of her, really, because Kentucky... It's Kentucky. Kentuckian society is already suspicious of her sexuality. And she doesn't want to live with her father, so they're looking for somewhere else to live. And while they're driving around, they just happen across this property called Harmony Landing, and it's beautiful, and they want to establish a horse and dog breeding farm there. Um, and so they buy it, by which I mean her dad buys it, and they live there, and they start setting up a horse and dog breeding farm, and it's very idyllic. Do they have experience with horse and dog breeding, or was this just like a dream that they wanted to do? I mean, thing? it worked for her father with newspapers. <laughs> <laughs> so Henrietta has been an accomplished horsewoman, and I believe she also has dogs in her capacity as like a fox hunter, which she is quite passionate about. Okay. If you remember way back when Bob first got his five million, he buys her a horse. Oh, yeah, she's no, loved he did. horse riding since childhood. So Henrietta knows some of what she's doing here. Okay, she teaches Helen to ride a horse and to hunt, which will come up in a moment. Mm-hmm. So it's a very idyllic property and a very idyllic home. But Henrietta's drinking is quite a sore spot, particularly as Helen isn't really interested in having big parties or anything like that. And she's quite like a healthy person because she's a, a very elite player. sportsman. Yeah. Mm-hmm. At this point, Henrietta is seeing very little of either Mina or Jack Houseman. Occasionally, they get together and talk about her, though. And I just wanted to make a note that Mina introduces Jack Houseman to someone called Archibald McLeish, who needs a director for a play. The play does not go over well. It's in verse, and no one likes that. (laughs) But he had cast a 20-year-old actor called Orson Welles in the lead role. Hey, Orson. And so Orson Welles and Jack Houseman here start up a partnership that culminates in and ends during the making of Citizen Kane. So everything has come up in this episode. There you go. Both Kane's and Citizen Kane. Yes. <laughs> that should go in the little bio thing. <laughs> From Kane's to Citizen Kane. <laughs> Jess H. Life, Henrietta Bingham. Mina goes back to England to revive a love affair with Clive Bell. She writes to him that she was counting the days since an accomplished hand has stroked my lovely spine. Which was dramatic and I liked it. Yes. Yes. I like that she thought her own spine was lovely. Yeah, my lovely spine. Good for you, Mina. Picture my spine, Clive. Picture (laughs) it. 
Yeah, so Henrietta teaches Helen to hunt. And then when Helen wins at Wimbledon, she oh. is asked... Yeah, no, she's a really good tennis player. Okay. She gets put on the cover of Time magazine. Oh, wow. Which we will also put on our social media. Mm. Yes. It's kind of nice that we're now in the age of, like, you know... Time magazine. Time magazine. Photographs. Um, Just, like, a lot of media being produced because Mm -hmm. we'll have content to put up. I wonder how many queer people have been on the cover of Time magazine. We can find out. We should research this. Yes. We'll just have a little Time magazine cover series. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But, yeah, she wins at Wimbledon, and she's asked to what she credits her success, and she says, I think the hunting I did the past year was grand training. So, basically, she's trying to credit her lover in public as best she can. Uh And that's... That's nice. It is nice. I mean, it's sad that she can't actually just be like, yeah, my girlfriend's amazing, but like, oh. Sad about that. Bob does his ambassadorship in London, and then he lingers there for a little while because of war. But he comes home in 1937. He is getting much weaker and much sicker, and he makes his final will, and then he passes away. Goodbye, Bob. Goodbye, Bob. Henrietta is distraught. Helen can't appear with her when they speak to the press or at the funeral or anything like that. And she struggles with depression. Also, by this time, Henrietta no longer quite has that completely established place as Bob's favourite and Bob's darling anymore. Mm. He still loves her quite a bit and is very dependent on her, but she's become increasingly unstable in terms of her alcoholism and things like that. And also, she started off as a very young woman with a lot of potential Mm. And she isn't that anymore. She never succeeded academically. She's not really, you know, having a career or anything like that. Mm. And so some of that has been transferred to Barry, who is just quite a stable young man. He gets married and, like, holds down a steady job very successfully and things like that. And so Barry ends up being the only real heir to Bob. He leaves him in control of virtually all of his assets. All he leaves Henrietta is Harmony Landing. He does leave her with a trust, but he leaves Barry as the ultimate executor of that trust. So he basically lets Barry decide what living she'll have. And, like, the amount suggested in the trust, or however it works, isn't really enough for her to be running the farm on. Mm. Okay. So, I don't know, I feel like that would be a bit of a slap in the face. It would be, yeah. And also she struggles financially now. So it's the late 1930s and things start to get worse for queer people around this time. Not to say that pre this it was ever great, But they'd enjoyed this period of relative visibility and now the public impression of them starts to be more and more that they're degenerate and cures for homosexuality are talked about more and more, female athletes are held under suspicion, bars frequented by queer people are shut down more frequently, the Hayes Code is enacted, which is a kind of like public decency code that's applied to film, which means that a lot of the things that early films could get away with in terms of depicting suggested homosexuality are now just not possible. Oh no. So this, of course, also makes things harder for Helen and Henrietta, and Henrietta has always struggled with secrecy, and now that's even worse. So Henrietta tries to kind of make a clean break from things. She's been splitting her time between her family home and Harmony Landing, and now she moves to Harmony Landing permanently, and she kind of purges her belongings, and she leaves some trunks in the attic, and she goes and she starts breeding horses. And it's just very difficult for her as a woman 
As I said, she doesn't have enough money per year to manage the farm. Her stepmother is quite difficult to get along with. Barry's wife is also difficult to get along with at times. He resents Henrietta's very close relationship with Barry. And she feels like an outsider in the like small town that is near to her home. Uh. Like There's a lot of gossip about who Helen is in the community. By this point, they've been together five years, but they start spending time away from each other just to deliberately kind of escape attention. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and this strains their relationship. And then they see each other in New York and they have some kind of falling out and they both go home with different women. Helen does return home again, but ultimately they can't sustain living together anymore. They still seem to love each other very much and they're still in some kind of relationship, but they're just not living together anymore. I have a letter that Helen wrote... Henrietta around this time. So for a little background, Henrietta's nickname for Helen is Hono. So she writes, I haven't forgotten your promise to go to the doctor for me and give me a report. I don't like to be tiresome about it, but I want to put my own mind at rest. That is in reference to Henrietta going to a doctor about her alcoholism. Uh, yeah. yeah. Such wonderful days are ahead for all of us, beloved, if you will only feel well again. Horses from Harmony Landing would be world famous. We will throw historic, brilliant parties and pull our brains to think up all sorts of fun. And I will be your farm manager when you need one and put you to sleep when you need that too. Aww. We can be happy and proud together, darling. But even if you don't like this plan, I am beside you, behind you, and on top of you, if you want, <laughs> naughty Hono. <laughs> you can do and say nothing to stop the constant flow of deep and growing love that goes out to you from my heart every time I look at you. Oh. Like, I'm just really emotional. Aww. I also just really like the, like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. That, that was a good letter. It was a good letter. Yeah. And yeah, Henrietta gets rid of all of her letters from female lovers, and this is the only one she keeps. Oh. I'm just really emotional. Oh. <laughs> I love Helen. Why? Because when does she get rid of her letters? She, I think she gets rid of them periodically because if they're discovered, she. It'll be bad for her. Yep. So she gets rid of the ones from, like, the past. So Helen gets involved with the Navy during World War II. She also writes a bunch of homoerotic pulp novels for the government. For the <laughs> government? Yeah, to like... Helen does? Helen does, yeah. To get women to want to join the war. She writes a bunch of pulps oh. about like sportswomen joining the Navy, but they're all massively homoerotic. And then when the war ends, she just keeps writing homoerotic pulps. It's great. <laughs> I love it. I, I love, love Helen. It. I want her to have her own episode. We'll see if we can. I think that'd be a case if we'd have to just do our own research and things to an extent. I yeah, don't know. One day. I don't want that. But um, one day, yeah. So she stays in the Navy for a very long time. She eventually becomes a commander, but she leaves in the 1950s. It's ostensibly because of financial cutbacks, but it might have been because of the purging of gay people that was happening under McCarthyism. Barry also enlists in the Navy during World War II. He's about to move to Washington, D.C., and he asks Henrietta to join the family for a week's holiday before he moves there. And while that is on, she has a breakdown, and what exactly happened isn't recorded, but it deeply upset Barry's wife, and it's bad enough that Barry has her put in a sanatorium. Oh no. Yeah. So she is in this cycle of drinking and then behaving badly, for lack of a better word, in public, and then feeling remorse, and then starting that cycle again for the rest of the war years. She struggles throughout her life, and especially sort of at this point, with feeling like she doesn't actually have a purpose that she's trying mm -hmm. to fulfill in life. You know, other people are moving on and building careers or having marriages, and she doesn't really have either of those things. And so she struggles to kind of find something to make her days meaningful. She's also at this point becoming increasingly estranged from key figures in her life, like her brother and Helen. She tries to apply to WAVES, which is the Navy's Women Accepted for Voluntary Emergency Service, 
Um, I like that they made a silly catchy acronym for that. Me too. I always approve of those. But <laughs> she's just not well enough physically to do it. She's losing a lot of weight. In 1942, Barry's wife, Mary, I really should have said her name prior to this moment, but whatever, <laughs> hires a nurse to stay with her at Harmony Landing just to make sure she eats. She does some work drumming up land and agricultural labour volunteers from women in the area. Mm-hmm. And sometimes she's grateful to have the work and to have a purpose, and sometimes she's just frantically questioning what she's doing with her life. And she keeps using alcohol to cope. Doctors see her sexuality as the cause of her addictions. And, I mean, they're kind of right in that she's dealing with a lot of homophobia that's been put on her by society, and she's using this to cope. But that's not what they mean. They mean queer people are degenerate and are inclined to vices. Yeah. Yeah. She has more than a dozen breakdowns and is hospitalised half a dozen times between 1940 and the late 1960s. So the war period is fairly well documented because people are scattered and everyone's writing letters to each other. But then it ends in 1945 and we just kind of lose track of her for a bit. So we have a bit of oral history. We have some photographs. There are a few financial reports and there's letters between Barry and her physicians. But that's it. So we know that Mary, who is the brother's wife, has her liquor cabinets padlocked and she hacks the padlocks off. She also summons a psychiatrist who says that Henrietta should be watched around the clock, heavily sedated and fed intravenously. He also suggests electroshock therapy. Psychiatrists are bad at things at this time. They're pretty bad at things now and they're so much worse then. Yeah. Um, which is a new thing, and Henrietta opposes to it, which Mary basically thinks is just her being annoying and stubborn. Wow, how annoying. Don't want electric shocks. Yeah, so she has electroshock therapy. Basically everything that is happening here would have been massively traumatic for yes. her. And it's very upsetting. She is prescribed seconal, which was to help her anxiety and depression and also to help get her off alcohol. It wasn't understood at the time that these could be addictive. And also, combined with alcohol, that they can kill you. So she has a severe overdose and almost dies, and it's possibly a suicide attempt. So her horses are doing well sometimes. She's having, like, occasional success. But she isn't doing well herself, and she's struggling to manage the farm. And she never manages to, and she never really wants to integrate into the conservative rural Kentucky community. And she's kind of stuck there. Yeah. And this is just how her life is now. Until 1950, when she puts Harmony Landing on the market and she moves to Manhattan. And then she meets Dorothy Bigelow-Holland, who is almost 60, so she's like about a decade older than Henrietta. She had starred in Cole Porter's first musical and also alongside Mae West. Yeah. Yeah. There are only like 12 people in America at this time. There are only 12 people in like the world. (laughs) (laughs) So she's no longer acting, but she's very enmeshed in the like queer theatre world. Mm -hmm. Okay, this sounds better for Henrietta. I thought this too, yes. That's not like I thought this and now like... It is better, yeah. That's good. But her alcoholism and her depression continue, and she ends up in hospital. She escapes the hospital and goes to her apartment, and Dorothy calls the hospital because she's not well. So when she ends up in hospital, who admits her to hospital if she escapes? Did somebody else put her in hospital? I imagine so. Okay. She gets put in hospital continuously by, like, her family. Like, she's not well. Like, she does need some kind of care, but the care they're giving her isn't actually productive in any way, I would argue. Like, the fact that I think Dorothy puts her back... You know, she's not, like, in any way composed or anything. She's Mm -hmm. doing quite badly. Like, it takes four hours to sedate her and take her to the hospital. Okay. Yeah. And she's sedated and force-fed through a tube, and they take the opportunity of her being out of it and essentially, I think, not able to protest to do more electroshock therapy. 
she tells Barry that she's going to jump out of the window if he doesn't get her out, and he takes her home. So the doctors aren't talking about it in terms of her being mentally ill or anything like that. They're blaming it on her mother's death and her homosexuality and her never having married. Okay. Yeah. Um, what year are we in now? We are in the 1950s. Okay. Yes. They suggest performing encephalograms on her to see if there's something wrong with her brain, and she refuses because she's scared that that's going to lead to a lobotomy, which yep. Barry did consider looking into. Yeah. But that never happens. To be clear, it never happens. Okay. And then at the age of 53, she becomes engaged to Benjamin Franklin Mackenzie. Where did she get him from? Who we is this guy? We don't really know. He might have been a bartender or a waiter. He's referred to as both in like letters from the time. Okay. Uh, they get married in June. By September, he's run off. And four years later, the divorce goes through on grounds of desertion. Okay. So is this possibly... Maybe linked to the idea that they were telling her her homosexuality was the problem here, and then maybe, she but get I don't know. We know nothing. No one knows. There's like a photo of them sitting at a table together. Like I don't know. Okay, that was as much information as you had. Yeah, that is literally every fact I have for you on Benjamin Franklin Mackenzie. Okay, he just came out of nowhere and went to nowhere like three months later. Yeah. The reason why this is kind of relevant is because it worsens her financial situation because they, like, buy a house together. Oh, yeah. Runs off. Mm-hmm. And she's like, okay. Yep. Yeah. She goes back to England in 1955 for the first time since 1937, and she gets in touch with David Garnett. He says that he felt upon hearing her voice that he had opened a door into a scene in 1923. Yeah. He wants her to meet his family, especially his daughter, who was named Henrietta. Oh. Oh. But he also writes to his contemporaries that he noticed a kind of a vagueness and a forgetfulness about her that probably comes from long-term alcohol abuse. Yep. yep. Yeah. yeah. She's not doing well. The first half of this book was so much fun, guys, and then I committed. I'm sorry. The Aww. first half was fun. And like... Yeah. So a lot of little details we have about her come from the memoirs and the writings and the letters of artistic crowds that she's not really in but is associated with the members of. And this is kind of really her last hurrah for being involved with any of them and she passes out of mention at this time over the 50s and the 60s her life is increasingly occupied with doctors and her family starts not wanting her to come to events because of what she might do barry has to sit her down and kind of have a very frank conversation with her about her finances in the wake of her disastrous tiny marriage to whoever benjamin franklin (laughs) mckenzie is which she's very ashamed about so dorothy remains committed to her in the 50s and 60s but dorothy is like not a young woman and she can't look after her Mm -hmm. and barry pays a woman to live in her apartment and to make sure she eats and take some medication Mm -hmm. and the nurse says she's doing a bit better but that her problems clearly aren't solved and then in june 1968 she dies in the night yeah and so barry doesn't talk about her a lot he had a tendency i think just as people did at the time to kind of only portray the best face to the public Mm -hmm. and to not talk about problems in the family mm-hmm. and she just sort of wasn't talked about all that much in the Bingham family for a long time and then Emily Bingham was curious about her she'd heard about her and then she found the trunks that she'd left in the attic which was full of clothes including Mina's <laughs> and papers of her and she decided to piece together a biography and that is really the only source on the life of Henrietta Bingham she doesn't have a Wikipedia page wow okay yeah so yeah to be clear I essentially read the biography and then googled her and was like oh that's it (laughs) and then i presented this episode is emily a descendant of barry 
Yes, okay. yes. Emily is a descendant of Barry. So Barry is her grandfather. Okay. Her father is also called George Barry. Okay. Emily Bingham is not called George Barry. <laughs> good Weirdly. for you, Emily. Yes. Yeah, good for you, Emily. I'm sorry if you listen to this, Emily. <laughs> yeah, so Emily Bingham, by the way, named her daughter Henrietta as well, which oh, I thought was quite nice. That's good. So Emily ends her biography of her great aunt thus. The whole Henrietta remains out of reach. She would not want to be delivered or pinned down anyway. The former is insulting and the latter always scared her. Yet she is now without question extant. The trunk is open. This volume is, in sense, another lover, pursuing her and being pushed away. Henrietta leaves us with a series of sounds, unceasing calls to come home, ice clinking and emptying highball glasses, a saxophone note trailing away at the party's end. This is just really dramatic and I enjoyed it. I'm picturing her standing on the piano. I was going to say. (laughs) It's so dramatic. A tennis racket smashing a ball, a powerful car engine sighing as it shut off, pills rattling in a bottle. She took freedom as far as she could. She gave pleasure by not living the brilliant life expected of her. She disappointed her father, her brother, her lovers. Henrietta's charm and best efforts could not dissolve the pain she spent years trying to escape, but in her return to us again, she may even briefly find acceptance. I enjoyed that paragraph. So that was Henrietta Bingham. So the biography of her written by her great niece is called Irrepressible, The Jazz Age Life of Henrietta Bingham. If you Google Henrietta Bingham, it will come up and like nothing else will. So it's easy to find. Yeah. And I also wanted to make a note that if you're interested in this and you want to go read her biography, like do it. It's interesting. It's great. There's a lot that we have to cut out of someone's life to fit into an hour. But also, yeah, just be aware that those racial dynamics come up and that like her father has a much worse view on african-americans than she does she's a positive influence on him and he like moves away from those views but those views are listed and he talks about lynchings and things and oh, just wow, like okay. be careful if you go and read this book if that kind of thing is something that you don't want to read yes like there are a few stories he tells about an ancestor of his who was in the Ku Klux clan and things like that like it's right oh, yeah. yeah yeah how do people feel about us having done this episode? Henrietta doesn't do much, also lives a very unhappy life. Obviously, neither are things that we just do not talk about, but it's not, like, you know, something that we've massively talked about yet. Yeah, I mean, she lives a very unhappy life, in a large part because she's queer. And it's just very frustrating to read something where it's like, if not clear fixes, then, like, clear problems that did not need to be these problems. And yeah. her life was, like, ruined because of it. Like, it's not as if, you know, we get someone with depression and alcoholism and we can just solve it like that today. You know, like, she had so much pressure put on her academically. And it's like, if she was today, maybe, you know, someone maybe would that... have picked up on the fact she had a learning disability. And, like, maybe she wouldn't have experienced such crippling homophobia and things like that. You know, like, she starts out with all of this potential and then mm. I feel like, yeah, society makes it, like, impossible for her to ever really follow through on having, like, a happy life. Society makes it impossible for her to follow through on her potential and then is disappointed in her for not doing Mm. it. Yeah. She also doesn't do any less than, say, Anne Lister did. She travels a bunch. She. But I think the thing is more that Anne Lister feels that she has purpose and she has goals and that Henrietta Bingham struggles with the fact that she does not her entire life. And I'm not saying that she is worth less because of that, but, like, she felt that her life held less meaning because of that. I'm definitely on board for queer historical figures that don't do anything. Mm. Like, I'm happy for that to be a thing. I don't feel like we should limit ourselves to people who are famous or people who you can define with an occupation or something like that. 
Mm. I mean, that's going to be most of them just by default. Yeah, most um, of them we've heard of because yeah. they're famous other than their queerness. I think she's worth talking about because, like, it's very nice to talk about queer people who do what they want and are successful, and mm. that's very important for us to talk about. But it would be a uh, misrepresentation if we didn't also talk about queer people who didn't succeed at what they wanted and also who suffered because they were queer. Obviously, we still have to talk about that history, but I do feel like I need to be able to contextualise that in some way that's like useful for people. Her life just trails off into a spiral of like trauma and misery, but I don't think that I can say anything about it. Yeah, and I don't necessarily feel like you need to say anything about it. I think we just are going to have to acknowledge that this is a sad one. Yeah. And sometimes there are sad ones. Yeah, and that is a part of queer history, that sometimes people have lives with no nice narrative, and then it ends badly. And homophobia happens. And, and homophobia happens, and that's a part that we have to talk about. Mm. I love her. Like, at the very least, she was a charismatic and happy person who made people happy and then later she wasn't a happy person but she still made a fox cake once and danced on a piano playing the saxophone with that thank you very much for listening if you enjoyed our episode and want to follow us online we're on tumblr as queer as fact on facebook as queer as fact and on twitter as queer as fact you can also write to us directly at queer as fact at gmail.com and you can find all our other episodes on podbean and on itunes If you listen to us on iTunes, please rate us and review us because it really helps us. And we'll be back on the 15th of October where I'll be talking to you about Rosa Bonheur, a 19th century French artist. Thanks for listening and we'll see you then.